0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, What is Culture? My name is Rocco Lungarello, and this is part two of the season two finale. Last week in part one, we heard Dr. Christopher Budnick discuss in great length the origin and the focus of industrial organizational psychology, also known as IO psychology, which is essentially the scientific study of human behavior in organizations and in the workplace. Still, I thought it would be interesting to provide another professor's take on this field, on culture, and on this podcast. So this week's episode features Dr. Mary Ignani, a psychology professor at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, and their director of the Industrial Organizational Psychology Program. Initially, the plan was to incorporate both Chris and Mary's interviews into one episode. But after listening back to our conversations, I felt that the guests deserve their own episodes since they provide such interesting and complementary points of views. In a minute, you will listen to Mary discuss the role of an IO psychologist, national culture versus organizational culture, dominant culture versus subcultures, as well as some particular challenges that Tango may face on our journey to rediscovering our culture. You know, it's hard to believe that since the launch of this podcast, we've published 33 episodes and have completed interviews with nearly 50 individuals. Still, in many ways, we've only just begun. And this episode, combined with Dr. Budnick's, have helped spark some ideas for where to take this show in Season 3. This episode begins with Dr. Ignani sharing what sparked her interest in IO psychology, and how she initially moved from Michigan to New York to pursue the fashion industry, yet ended up taking an entirely different path. I love those stories. Okay, let's get to it. It's
1: a funny story. It's, it's a ridiculous story, maybe. Um, so what led me... So I went to a state school in Michigan. Um, not the state school. I went to Central Michigan University and got a bachelor's in marketing with a minor in fashion merchandising. So I came to New York yes. with ideas of being in the fashion industry. Oh,
0: how interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, I was not in the fashion industry. I was in the clothing industry, meaning I was just somebody who, you know, helped create clothes that you find at Nordstrom's, right? So I ultimately landed in men's trousers (laughs) and worked with men's trousers. (laughs) Those are important. That's an important article of clothing. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. it is. Um, So I did that for a number of years and then got a job at at an investment bank and quickly realized that that culture did not suit me. Why is that? I am not that competitive, I am a competitive person, but I am not that competitive of a person. Um, And it was also a very strong culture. So it was very prescriptive and that's just not the type of person I am. Yeah. Um, But the managing director of the group that I worked for um, was an IO psychologist. And I was like, wait, what is that? What, what is that? (laughs) So I started looking into it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to help explain. This is going to tell me why people do the things they do, why managers are placed as managers when they shouldn't be managers. Um, And so I went back to school, got a master's degree in I.O. and then my Ph.D. in I.O. I mean, I think most people get into psychology because they're like, why, what, why? Um, And that's definitely was, you know, because I was sitting in the department that I was sitting in Mm -hmm. going, what? why are they allowing these people to do this? Why is this person put into a managerial position when they should not be managing people? Um, And yeah, the study of IO.
0: So last week in part one of the season two finale, we heard Dr. Christopher Budnick discuss in great length, the origin and the focus of industrial organizational psychology. Still, I thought it would be interesting to hear another professional's take on this field. Here it is.
1: Um, So it's industrial organizational psychology, right? So there's the I side and there's the O side. So the I side is more um, looking at, you know, setting up, um, let's say, selection systems and ensuring that selection systems are hiring the right people for the right job, um, that there's no adverse impact, meaning no discrimination, nothing going on. In that way, okay, like yeah.
0: The personnel side,
1: yeah. The personnel side, exactly. That's exactly what the I side more is more, and you know, and I studied that most definitely. Um, and then there's the O side, which is more my side. Um, so it's more the peopley side. Yeah, like yeah. that's what I like to call it. It's mm-hmm. the more peopley side. <laughs> um, you know, like um, training and development is a bit development coaching is more on the O side of the organizational side of it. Um, doing those types of things, you know, but. As an IO psychologist, of course, you're um, trained in both sides. It's just how... And that's the other great thing about IO psychology is that there's a lot of different ways to go, right? So I was really passionate about diversity issues and um, those types of things and the the, the people side of that. So I focused more on that O side while being trained in the statistics and all of that.
0: The more I learned about this field the scientific study of human behavior in organizations and in the workplace, the more fascinated I became by it. But I was also curious to know how the science is actually applied to businesses. So here is Dr. Ignani answering the question, what are some of the reasons why businesses even partner with IO psychologists?
1: One of the main things that an IO psychologist can do um, is we bring Um, the science, right? So we're studying the psychological principles and then applying them to business. Um, But we're also trained in statistics. We're trained in research methods. Um, And as a PhD, you're really, um, you know, entrenched in that and taught that. So we can bring the ability to create a survey or use a survey that's, you know, valid and reliable and then crunch the data and then, report it back out to you guys in a very understandable, non-sciencey way, mm. right? Um, so one of our strengths is that ability um, to correctly use surveys to help diagnose what's going on in the organization, whether it be an organiza- a culture survey, a job satisfaction survey, things really? like that. Yeah.
0: And this is typically over a span of
1: However, yeah, whatever. Like it depends. Like On what suite, are you ch- could be depends, exactly. Sure.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> Seriously. So
1: am I. That's why I do it. <laughs> hmm. And it's funny, every time I tell people what I do, um, like probably a hundred percent of the time, especially if it's a person that I'm meeting for the first time, they're like, oh, we need that at my company, like, and I'm talking, like, <laughs> people that work at multinationals to you know mom and pop stores.
0: Right. Well, I like that you say you bring the science yeah. of it to it, so because it's not just theoretical.
1: No, no. We, t- you know, we go in, we we get the theory, but then we're applying. We're in applied psychology, so we're we're applying those theories to organizations. That's what's so fascinating. That's what I love is watching. Like being in an organization and seeing the theories actually working out in real life.
0: Next, I asked Dr. Ignani what she believes most employees ultimately hope to gain from their occupations. And if you remember in last week's episode, I asked Dr. Budnick the same question and he discussed how it varied by the individual and he provided three broad categories or buckets that most would fall into and they were job, career, or calling. So some people have jobs, which means they view their occupations simply as a means of income so that they can enjoy life outside of work. And then some are career focused, and their goal is to climb the ladder and see how far they can move up in the organization. And then there are those who see their jobs as a calling and could not imagine ever doing anything else professionally. So here, Mary discusses how every generation approaches their work a bit differently. Very interesting. Let's listen.
1: You know, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. Right. Um, and it's partly the million-dollar question because of the three generations that are at work right now, mm-hmm. right? The baby boomers who, I'm a Gen Xer. I was told that the baby boomers were going to retire and all these jobs were going to be opened up. And the baby boomers are not retiring. God love them.
0: They don't want to go. They don't want
1: to go. And good on them because they're showing us that we can continue to work on. Right? I guess that's good. Um, then you have the Gen Xers, and then you have the millennials. And the millennials actually have kind of it's they're also a little bit different. So that's Whether Paul's they're
0: nineteen eighty.
1: Um yeah, yeah, okay. millennials are like the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Um and then in a few years we're going to have the next generation, which I can never remember what they're called, but the ones under the millennials, so we'll have four generations in the, in the workforce. The what the baby boomers and the Gen Xers tend to want is different than what the millennials want, right? Um the older the older generations <sighs> tend to, you know, <laughs> go to work there. They, you know, they're, they work, they, um, they'll stay later. They'll get their job done. Um, and, um, you know, it's like work is work. Yeah. yeah. Millennials are kind of the first generation who are demanding work life balance. Absolutely. You know, the Gen Xers and the bottom part of the baby boomers were the, were the generations who were like, you know, we need more work-life balance. And we kind of talked about it. But the millennials are demanding it. So when 5 o'clock comes, they're gone. They're done for the day. Yep. You know, whereas you don't tend to see that as much in Gen Xers and baby boomers. If, they're, if the work's not done and it's 5 o'clock, they'll stay later and they'll get the job done. But they really want work-life balance. So... That I think, and you know, there's no panacea. We're all different in how we're motivated and what we want from jobs, um, but we we do kind of know that if if the job is meaningful to the person and the work that they're doing is meaningful and it has a purpose, they see the purpose behind it, um, they're going to be more satisfied.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I ran into an article this week, and I saw something called the purpose gap. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea where a, a recent grads are mm-hmm. going into the workforce, and there's a quote purpose gap, meaning they don't—they're like, "What am I doing? Mm-hmm. What does this all mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I what am, what am I really contributing to Yes. Here? Yeah, and there's this whole thing like they they want a job. Mm-hmm where they're contributing, yeah. they understand what it is that they're yeah. doing, yeah. and they are like they can't just have a job to have a job. Right. Like, that's not even no. a thing.
1: No. Whereas for Gen Xers and baby boomers, you get a job just to have a job.
0: Well, and even, I mean, you know, I was born in 1980, so I'm in the middle. You're of,
1: right at the cusp. I'm like
0: a millennial-ish.
1: Gen Xer. It depends, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: But, I mean, that's how I was raised. Work is a place you go to, so you can provide for your family. hmm you know what I mean? Yeah. And then that was really it. Yeah. And you were, lo- <laughs> there was always this thing, I remember, and maybe it's the Italian thing, but you're so <laughs> lucky to have a job. Oh, yeah. Like, if you have a job, yeah. you're like blessed by yeah. the, by oh, the yeah. gods. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I not the stereotype or, you know, but the millennial, there's this idea, this perception of the, the younger generation where they expect more. Yeah. from their career but I think that's kind of really great I really I kind of envy that
1: yeah yeah
0: because they want to make a difference right or what's the
1: point right and the, well they want to know that what they're doing is contributing Is exactly like you said
0: yeah yeah is it healthy or realistic to believe that in order to be happy you have to have a, a successful career
1: well, where do we spend most of our lives? We spend most of our, our most jobs. of our day at our jobs, so most of our life is at our job. Uh, m- many people hmm. define themselves by their job. Totally right. Um, is it healthy to wrap yourself up in your job so much that it becomes your self definition? You know, I'm not that kind of psychologist, (laughs) right? I can't counsel people. But what I can say is probably not, right? Um, I think the millennials kind of have it right with the work-life balance. Like, you you know, being able to be at your job, do your job, when you're at your job, in your office or wherever it is, and then that's it. I'm going home now and I'm going to have fun with my family or my friends.
0: That almost seems borrowed in a sense from... What I know of the European culture.
1: Absolutely. But they
0: took a page out of the book. Yeah,
1: I have to tell you, my European friends, I always marveled at the fact that they went on vacation. Like, my American friends never took vacation. No, I'm saying even here in the States. My European friends who live here and work here, they would take their two, three weeks Mm -hmm. and go on vacation. My American friends never took vacation. Because that's our mind. It's that Puritan work ethic really that is. the American culture is built on, right?
0: Yeah, right. But it could also, and I, I don't know. This is kind of maybe going in the weeds a little bit, but it's a. It could be insecurity too. Like you, you maybe well, that's all you have going for you. <laughs> well, I
1: hope not, but yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, it could be, but you know, i I think the higher you identify yourself as your job, yeah, the. The harder it is for you to take vacation days, to take personal days, to have anything else but your job. Because you're so wrapped up in your job. Yeah. And, you know, I think being wrapped up in anything, whether it be your job, a hobby, whatever, can't be that healthy. Yeah. You know.
0: (laughs) So, So there was an SAT word that Mary used in that last piece that I honestly had to look up myself. Panacea which means a solution or a remedy. If you knew that word, I'm impressed, even though I I really don't believe you. So the second part of our interview moves towards a discussion of culture, including Tango's journey and the goals of this podcast. And so here, to set the table a bit, Mary quickly discusses the difference between national culture and organizational culture. Here we go.
1: There's national culture, and then there's organizational culture, right? And national culture impacts organizational culture, okay? Okay. Um, So culture is the traditions, the beliefs, the behaviors that as a society, as a group of people, we all agree to. Mm -hmm. And then it's passed on from generation to generation. So that's how a national culture goes along. An organizational culture is a system of shared meanings within that organization. It's what distinguishes one organization from another. It's not, it's descriptive, right? It's not whether you like or dislike your culture um, or your organization. It's how you describe. It's the personality of your organization. Sure. It's about your core values. Right. Right? I mean, the organizational culture is about the core values and what the company holds and getting your employees to agree to those core values and hold dear to them. Right? And and to buy into them. And the more you have your employees buying into your core values, the greater the job satisfaction, the less turnover intentions, the greater the job commitment. Right. the higher the performance of not only your employees, but the organization as a whole.
0: Next, you will hear Dr. Ignani define and discuss dominant cultures and subcultures, as well as the challenges often associated with company mergers and acquisitions. Let's listen.
1: So, culture, yeah, right? Yeah. There's the dominant culture and there are subcultures. The dominant culture is... Um, The overall culture. If I were to ask you, what is the culture of your organization, Mm -hmm. that would be what you were describing. Yep. Okay? Subcultures are created um, because of a shared experience within a department or within a region. So... Um, and it, it's based on shared experiences, shared problems, that type of thing, mm-hmm. okay? Um, so these subcultures um, can definitely have an impact. And I thought this was really interesting, especially for tango, with the in the respect that you are multinational, right? So you're all over the world. So you probably have a bunch of subcultures. Absolutely. And sometimes... Depending on how dysfunctional things are, the subculture within that department or within that region can override, and not override the dominant culture so much; is more impact the individuals. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I do. Well, and the other thing too is that we've there's been many acquisitions.
1: Well, that's the other thing. Mergers and acquisitions can be a barrier to culture, actually.
0: How's that? Yeah.
1: Um, in that if. They, <laughs> The number one reason, well, I shouldn't say the number well, one, of the main reasons that acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions don't work is because of a lack of fit with the cultures. Mm-hmm. So if the cultures are clashing, sure. there's going to be problems and it becomes a barrier to that change and to that merger and acquisition being truly successful.
0: Right. Well, because it starts with that. So if the cultures right. don't mesh, right. then...
1: And the other thing though is, mm. is that you're not just meshing cultures, you're also meshing people, right? And people and individuals, when they're going through a merger, they don't see it as a merger, right? One company is taking over the other company, even if it's being called a merger. And yeah, so it's like
0: a hostile takeover. E-
1: exactly. <laughs> you know, and so if you don't have the buy-in from the employees, mm-hmm. then there's going to be all kinds of problems
0: mm-hmm. because
1: they're going to want to stick to the culture that they know.
0: Right. And there was, we experienced that yeah. specifically uh, a couple years ago when we acquired other organizations, we learned the hard way, yeah. but the leadership in place now wasn't the leadership then. Right. So, but I can absolutely see that that's yeah. true.
1: You need, so you need, um, You need it coming from the top down, right? You need the top saying that this is going to be happening and prepping the people and being transparent and communicating in order to get the buy-in for the employees. Mm -hmm. But the employees need to have voice, right? They need to be able to say, I'm not happy about this. Even though it's going to happen, they need to have voice. The dominant culture is really about it's the shared values, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody has these shared values. So there's also strong cultures and there are weak cultures. And it's not good or bad. It's just a strong culture is going to be more prescriptive. Um, It's going to have most of the people um, agreeing to the core values of the company um, and committing to those values. Um, So a strong culture... Tells people what they should be doing and how they should be behaving. Um, So the stronger the culture, probably the harder it is to change as well, though. Mm -hmm. The more entrenched that culture is.
0: So the follow-up question here for Mary was this. Is it possible for an organization to alter a dominant culture? Here's her response.
1: Yes. Yes. It is. That's the easy answer.
0: Okay. <laughs> but there's like a, all these other variables. Exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's not easy. It doesn't, it takes time. Um, and it, it takes a lot of effort. And you need change agents. You need people who are championing the change of the culture. Um, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It takes time.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges?
1: I, resistance to change, resisting, you know, nobody likes change no matter how minor, mm-hmm. you know, um, nobody likes it. And so you, you get resistance of change and the more, um, the more the culture change is pushed on the employees rather than kind of easing the employees in, allowing them to get that buy-in, allowing them to have the voice, allowing them to see why this needs to be done, mm-hmm. it then, you know, you're going to have constant pushback, right? So that's where open communication and transparency is really important.
0: In the last year, Tango initiated culture committees across all of our locations, an idea which was taken from the folks in our Indianapolis office. Culture committees are comprised of dedicated Tango employees who all work very hard to ensure that the culture of their respective locations are nurtured, cared for and maintained. And so I told Mary about this company-wide initiative and she had a rather interesting response. Let's listen.
1: But do you have anybody who doesn't who's against this on those committees?
0: In the committee No, I wouldn't think so. like a naysayer you mean in it. I would I'm Are go.
1: they getting voice?
0: No. Maybe, well, they're just probably talking behind our backs. Exactly. In Which is not. Of the office.
1: Right, but that's also then undermining mm-hmm. what you guys are trying to do, right? Yeah. Everybody needs a voice, even the naysayers. Yeah. Because if you can actually flip mm-hmm. the naysayer, they become the strongest advocate.
0: Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I hear that all the time. <laughs> I hear that all the time. So next, I ask Mary if she has any advice for Tango as we work to improve the culture across all of our locations and she offers a very scientific response which of course I appreciate. Here it is.
1: Without being able to really be there, you know, I, of course. you know. Um I guess the question is what do you mean by improve your culture? What, what does improve mean? I mean and I'm not asking you to tell me that, sure. right? But I think that that's a vital question to ask and to Also let all the employees know because are you trying to have one tango culture around the world in all of the offices so you have one, you know, so you have that dominant culture um, all around the world so the subcultures become less, I don't want, uh, lack of a better way of putting it, maybe less important or less impactful. Yeah. Um, b- with the understanding though, that national culture impacts organizational culture. Um, so there are, you know, things that happen in other countries that you have to be mindful of cause you have to be culturally sensitive. Right. Um, but uh, hmm. you know, what does improve mean yeah. and what was wrong with the other, what was wrong with the old culture? Like, did you guys see now I have to be the PhD researcher and ask, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not asking you to tell me this stuff, but was a survey sent out like with regards to the culture and asking, you know, like current culture, what's going on? How do you feel about it? You know, those types of things and surveying all the employees to see if they're from their perspective, is there really a problem Mm -hmm. now? You know, I might've just, taking your podcast job away, but
0: (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm sorry, Rocco, you know,
1: but you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I do. (laughs) So, so the goal of this podcast is more about discovering our culture than it is about improvement, but Mary does make a pretty valid point there and surveying our employees is something we should consider. So lastly, as we approach the end of our interview, I asked Dr. Ignani, what do you think about Tango doing a podcast like this? Here's her response.
1: It's refreshing that you're able to do a podcast that's kind of stripped down and just gets at the heart of it and, um, you know, saying it like it is. That's um, it's pretty remarkable, I think. Um, not a lot of organizations <laughs> are willing to to put it on the line like that Um, because if it is truly unvarnished then it's the good, the bad, and the ugly and you know that's pretty brave for an organization to to do that
0: So that's our show and the end of season 2 A great thank you to Dr. Mary Ignani for carving out an hour of her time during the start of a crazy busy semester to sit down with me and to provide our listeners with a thoughtful discussion of IO psychology as well as organizational culture and human behavior. There's so much for me and for our listeners to take in here, which is perfect since as season two concludes with this episode, it's the ideal opportunity for me as a host and for us as listeners to pause and to reflect. In many ways, the success of this podcast is its existence it's an avenue in which discover our culture across all of our tango locations it's an opportunity to give our guests a voice and allow our listeners to learn more about their peers both professionally and personally it is a channel of open communications that allows our clients and even our prospective employees to learn more about the people of tango It truly is a window into who we are. And consequently, every non-Tango employee that we have brought onto this show has commended our organization for having the courage to produce this podcast and to make it available to the public. We've spoken to Tangaroos from Romania, China, England, France, and the United States, all with various roles across various departments including sales, operations, marketing, human resources, and product, and more. We've interviewed guests during Tango Live 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee. we strung together an interview with 14 members of the Culture Committee during Power Week in Indianapolis. We've spoken to clients. We've spoken to vendors. We've even spoken to Dave Hansen, the operating executive at Marlin Equity Partners. We've covered a lot of ground. But in many ways, the conversations and the work surrounding culture is just getting started. In the coming weeks and months, keep an eye out for communications from me, asking Tango employees for input, criticism, advice, and general feedback around culture, and more specifically, around how, moving forward, we at Tango can begin to better utilize this podcast As a channel to not only discover our culture, but also to help steer it in the direction that is most beneficial to everyone within our organization. Meet me back here in a couple weeks for the premiere of Season 3. And of course, thank you all for listening.